If you're wondering whether uh, I'm going to continue this topic and be preaching about God's wrath and homosexuality on Christmas, um, <laughs> next Sunday uh, we'll wrap up our, uh, our messages in Romans and take a couple Sunday break. And uh, we'll be talking about uh, the, the Incarnation and Christmas and the Advent of our, of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to uh, Romans, Romans chapter 1. The section that we're looking at is verses 18 through 23. We covered verse 18 last week, so we're going to pick it up in verse 19. And last week, we began, a, we began a new section in this letter where Paul gives us another reason why he was eager to preach the gospel in, in Rome. Paul was called to his task as an apostle but he also wanted to preach. And he wanted to preach because in the gospel, he says God is revealing his way of righteousness. The righteousness that we need to enter heaven cannot be produced by us. It cannot be manufactured by religious duties. It must be granted to us by by a gift from the Lord himself and on the basis of faith in in Jesus Christ. But, But after declaring that God is revealing His way of righteousness, Paul says that's not the only thing that God God is revealing. He is also revealing His wrath from heaven, and and He's doing that right now. It's a prelude of the the wrath that is to come. It's it's diluted right now, and it's coming in, in full strength. And So beginning in verse 18, Paul begins to describe how God's wrath is coming. And it's coming against the ungodliness of mankind. And and then he details why it's coming. Paul's eager to preach the gospel of Christ because the message is urgently needed. And and just like in Paul's day, the message is urgently needed in in our day. You can think of verse 18 kind of like like an umbrella, a summary statement in, in talking about the reality of God's wrath. God's wrath is a reality. It's being revealed, and you can see that in in society and, and the degradation that's been taking place ever since the, the fall, ever since they were, man was put outside of the garden and it just gets worse and worse. And, and then verses 19 through 23, which we're going to look at this morning, explains the reasons that that wrath is, is being revealed. It's real and, and, and God is not indiscriminate. It, it's coming for specific reasons. And so with the introduction of himself, his message and his proposition... Paul now moves to the exposition and defense of the gospel. And the first thing that he deals with is the need for the, for the gospel. And as he prepares us for this, uh, this passage, he does so in verses 16 and 17 by handing us the anti-venom of, of the gospel. The God's saving righteousness is revealed in, in the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he sends us, for the next three chapters... Uh, down into a, a, a pit infested with vipers. And there's, there are three deadly snakes hiding there. Chapter 1, the, the end of chapter 1, the Gentiles are, are condemned. Uh, this, this is the, the person without God, has no concern of God. It's the person that you probably meet every day on the street in Lynchburg or, or in the Atlanta airport or wherever you go. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 29, the, the Jew or the moral person is, is convicted. This is the, the person who knows right and wrong and sits on a church pew every Sunday and yet they're, they're without Christ. And Chapter 3, all mankind is sentenced. Uh, in case there was any doubt of, of who God says is guilty, the Bible declares all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. And Paul says all three of these groups are locked up right now under, under God's wrath. It's, it's being revealed uh, against them. And they're awaiting the full and final outpouring, which is coming one day. And they deserve this wrath because they suppress the truth about God, the truth that God has, has given to, to all people. They, they suppress it. We used the, the analogy last week. Uh, uh, one commentator says it's like taking the truth and putting it in a box and then sitting on the the lid. And nobody had to teach them to do that. Nobody had to teach you to do that before, before you came to Christ. You just do it by nature. And if you want a simple proof, just ask yourself the question. Whenever you were lost, when you were without Christ, did, 
Did you naturally come to church and, and enjoy hearing messages about God's holiness? Um, did, you, did you feel, how did you feel hanging a, a, around a genuine believer? Not the hypocritical kind that you can find things in their life and say, well, wow, if they're a Christian, then I must be. I mean, but the real ones, the, the ones that convict you by their, by, by their life. You probably didn't hang around those people very, very long. And what do people do whenever you witness to them? Or you talk about the Bible with them, maybe at, maybe at work, uh, and you open the Word of God. Don't they naturally find excuses that try to explain away whatever is so clear that, that you're showing them? You know, what about the people who have never heard the gospel? Uh, uh, why does uh, bad things happen to, do bad things happen to good people? I mean, you don't have to go to church every time the doors are open in order to be saved. I don't think a loving God will, will send people to hell. The Bible is full of errors. It's been translated over and over and over. And I could go on and on, and you've heard many of those things and, and probably many more. Before we ever hear what Paul has to say in the book of Romans today, you know that sinners are suppressing the truth in, in many ways. They question the facts about the Bible. They question the person of God. Um, today, they're questioning whether there's even truth at all. Uh, you, you turn on the TV or, or, or read on, the, on the, uh, a news site on the Internet, and people are talking about, I'm speaking my truth, right? It's, it's time for me to speak my truth, uh, as if it's something that's movable or, or, or it's something that they validate personally, like a parking ticket. Um, my approval says it's, uh, it's right. And it's not a modern phenomenon. It's, uh, you can go back to the New Testament. What did the scribes and Pharisees do whenever they were confronted with Christ? L sit down and listen to Him with folded hands to try to figure out if what He was saying was true, or did they dismiss Him? I mean, you know the answer to that. When they saw His miracles and they couldn't deny them, the, there, there, was a, there was a man who was born blind or, or a person with dropsy from birth and they knew the person from birth and now they're healed standing in front of them in, in the synagogue. They couldn't deny the miracle, so they attributed the miracle to Satan. And when they heard His words, they, they said He's a carpenter's son, He's not qualified to speak, and ultimately whenever they couldn't silence Him, they killed Him. And even after we're saved, we still have a tendency to suppress the truth. This, this passage is a primary example. We, we read parts of the Bible, we memorize parts of the Bible that we like, or maybe the ones that we agree with, and we skip over the other parts. We like the passages about Jesus' forgiveness and His faithfulness and His mercy. I do too. But not so much the ones that talk about wrath, but, but they're necessary. You see, we're truth suppressors by, by nature which means that what you're doing this morning is a good thing. It means that we must submit ourselves intentionally by a Spirit-empowered act of our wills to the truth. You, just like this morning, you have to sit under the truth, and you have to try to understand it, and then you have to try to uh, obey it. And so after starting the, or stating the reason that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven... Paul now describes how human beings do that. They suppress the truth. How do they suppress the truth? It's suppressed in very specific ways. And those specific ways are the reasons that God's wrath is coming. You could call it the, the anatomy of mankind's unbelief. And this passage about the Gentiles is broken down in two parts, verses 19 through 23, which is what we'll cover this morning. God's righteous wrath is revealed because people suppress the truth about God and they turn to idolatry. And then in verses 24 through 32, God describes the consequences of that idolatry. It's the degradation of, of the world, the downward spiral of, uh, of society. We're only going to look at the reasons the, this morning, verses 19 through 23, but in doing so, you can, you can see the makeup of a common person's unbelief. How do people get up every day and look in the sky and deny that there's a God? I mean, how do they enjoy the blessings of, of life uh, in anything good and then thank Buddha or themselves or nobody at all? How do they do that? How do they come up with fanciful explanations to explain God away? How do you worship anything or anyone other than the glorious God of heaven? Well, well the answer is they suppress the truth and... 
And Paul says men do that in four ways. In verses 19 through 23, he'll give us four ways mankind suppresses the truth about God and they're presented as reasons for, for God's wrath. Man denies the witness of creation in verses 19 and 20. Man disrespects the worth of the Creator at the beginning of verse 21. Man devises worthless beliefs instead, verses 21 and 22. And then man displaces the, the worship of God in verse 23. Man denies, man disrespects, man devises counter ideas, and then he displaces God in the very end and participates in idolatry. Let's look at the first way that mankind suppresses the, the truth. He denies the witness of creation. Paul says the truth is knowable, God is perceivable, and so man is inexcusable. Look, look if you would, at verse 19. Notice it's a continued explanation of verse 18. Because... That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without an excuse. That's a result. Paul starts by saying the truth is, is knowable. In fact, there's a plain witness that God has provided to every person so that mankind cannot stand before Him one day and say, I didn't know. I didn't know there was a God. Paul says that's impossible. And it's recorded right here in this verse. Paul uses two verb tenses here. That which is, uh, that which is made known of God is in the present tense, and for God showed it to them is in the, is in the past tense. God is presently revealing Himself to all mankind, and, and Paul says He's done that from the very beginning of time. It's not something new that just since Jesus came, God has been revealing Himself. He's been revealing Himself from, from the very beginning of creation. Paul says there's never a time when a person didn't have a witness of the truth. The truth is knowable, which answers the question that people often have. How can God condemn someone who, who's never heard about Him? I mean, how can, I mean, can God really hold someone who is in the, the deepest, darkest jungle that has never heard the name Jesus Christ? Can God hold that person accountable and, and judge them? The, the Bible says that, that He will. Remember, God, uh, Paul is using the, these verses as a reason God's wrath is, is, is currently being poured out and will be poured out in the end. And, and he's showing that God's not unjust because all mankind knows that there is a God. Is God unjust when He judges people who have never heard? The answer is no, He's not, because there's, there's no one anywhere that, that, that ever lacked a witness. God has made the truth known to them. It's placed it in them. I think Helen Keller is just one of many fascinating examples of this truth. You've, you ever heard her testimony? I'm sure you've heard of her, Helen Keller. Um, suffered an illness as a, as a young child. In about 19 months, uh, that, that illness struck her blind and, and deaf. And as a result, she never learned to speak or to communicate. And she spent her childhood struggling, trying to, trying to, to come to grips with that, trying to communicate with the world. She had all these thoughts, and, and, and she's living inside of this darkness inside of her head, and, and, and she can't communicate. She would, she would lash out in rage, uh, fits of frustration, when she couldn't interact with others. Her family believed that she was hopeless, a hopeless mute, and destined for the asylum and, until a teacher named Ann Sullivan, uh, Sullivan taught her sign language. And that's no small task, because she couldn't see. You teach somebody deaf sign language, but how do you teach somebody who can't even see? They don't even know what you're signing. But Helen, as you know the story, she learned to communicate well and went on to do great things. But what's interesting is when an Episcopal priest named Philip Brooks taught Helen Keller about God. When he did, she explained, Oh, that's his name. I didn't know he had a name. And Helen went on to tell him that she'd always known that there was a God, even before she had any way of communicating. She said she sensed his presence in the darkness and never felt completely alone and commented that she knew he was there all the time. She just didn't know what to call him. 
And God has not left Helen Keller or a Chinese farmer in the hinterlands of the Orient without a witness. They may not know his name, but the truth about him is knowable and that he's been there all along. And Paul says God's wrath is coming not because he's calloused or unkind. It's just the opposite. In his mercy and grace, he has has given a witness of himself. He's revealed himself to all people. And what those people do with that plain and obvious revelation is they explain it away. And they come up with fanciful ideas like the Big Bang Theory or fill in the blank. And God is not neutral about that. In fact, he's angry about that. And you can't be neutral about that either. I mean, one commentator said that men who don't believe in God are called atheists. And in Romans 1, God has returned the favor. God doesn't believe in atheists either. Because there is no man who was ever created that doesn't have a witness of God. Deep down, they know there is a deity. And for mankind to sense that and not seek Him or live as if He doesn't exist is a form of suppressing the truth. And God says it brings His wrath. But notice where God reveals Himself. Look look at verse 20. Verse 19 says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. It's in them. For for God is the one that that put that in there. In verse 20, where does He give a witness? Not only in them. He says, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived or clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Paul says the truth is knowable and and God is also perceivable. God is perceivable in creation. It's not enough to save, but but it's plenty to be aware. And notice the past and the present emphasis here of God's witness. For since the creation of the world, the very beginning, it's been clearly seen and being understood, like right now. So in verse 19... It says that God has placed a witness in man. And in verse 20, it says that witness is being perceived or understood through through creation. So there's something in them and there's something around them. And the word evident, it's evident or plain. It it means to declare, to manifest something. It, It means that you don't have to be an astronomer or an astrophysicist to see that there's a being who made everything. That there's something, in fact, someone who's greater than than you are. And I can relate to that. I mean, even as an unbeliever, I didn't come to Christ till I was 24, you know my testimony. Even as an unbeliever, I can, I can remember vividly sitting in biology class in, in 11th grade, 12th grade, it was in high school, thinking, this is ridiculous that, that this book says that I came from a monkey. I, I just never believed that. I mean, the idea, no matter how sophisticated you, you, you want to make the concept, slime became a tadpole, a tadpole became a monkey, and a monkey became a man. That's a ridiculous idea when you actually think about it. And one writer said the truth that it takes to... The truth is that it takes a concerted act of the will to deny a vastly powerful God that, that He made and sustains creation. It takes suppression of the truth. And that's where He's revealed Himself in creation. His invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood through what was made. It seems to be the best rendering of that that verse. His invisible attributes are then further defined as His eternal power and His deity. They're they're appositional. They further explain what, what He means by His... Invisible attributes. I mean, what Paul is saying is that, that God is a spirit. He, he can't be seen, but while He's hidden from human sight, we can learn a lot about Him through the things that are made. I mean, Jesus uses this analogy for the Spirit in John chapter 3. He says the, the work of the Spirit in salvation is like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the, the effects of the wind. You, You can't see the wind blowing outside, but you can see the leaves of the trees move. You can't see the the invisible, eternal God, the Creator, but you can see what He made. And when you look at what He made, what do you learn? The Bible says you learn that He's powerful. You learn that He's deity. 
you learn that He's great since only God could create like this. And Paul says creation reveals that there's a being that is far above us. And so to disregard that and to suppress that truth brings His wrath, and rightfully so. Kent Hughes gave this illustration. He said, if you put ten pennies, if I put ten pennies in my pocket, and I number them one to ten, so like every penny has a number, and then I put my hand in my pocket, the chances of pulling out the number one penny would be one in ten. If I place the number one penny back in my pocket and mix them all up again, then the chances of pulling out penny number two would be one in a hundred. The chances of repeating the same procedure and coming up with penny number three would be one in a thousand. Uh, to do so with all of them, one through ten in order would nearly be one in four million. Now think of the order of a cell and tell me that happened by chance. Or gaze at the stars of heaven uh, that, and tell me they just formed in organized clusters. Or, or the, difference, uh, the distance between the sun and the earth that are so perfectly spaced that there's right, a light enough to grow plants and, and heat enough to warm the oceans to create precipitation and climate. And tell me that just happened randomly. And Paul says that if you do that, it's not that you've lost your mind. You're suppressing the truth is what you're doing. That's exactly what David declares in Psalm 19. Did you know that? This is, where did Paul get his information here? Well, obviously the Holy Spirit, he's an apostle. But the New Testament's not the only place this is taught. Turn back to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, it's a psalm of David. And you find where Paul gets his original source material. Same author, different human author. Psalm 19 is divided into two sections. It's the the works and the Word of God. The works of God, the Word of God, the creation and and the Bible. Verses 1 through 6 is all focused on general revelation. Verses 7 through 11 is all focused on special revelation, or specific, the Bible. And watch what David does here. In verses 1 through 6, David says the same thing that Paul does in Romans 1. David is declaring that God has revealed Himself to all mankind through creation, and so that no one is an excuse. No one lacked a a revelation. Uh, Verse 1, David says it's God's revelation. You know this verse. The heavens are telling the handiwork of... uh, Heavens are, are telling the glory of God and the expanse is declaring His handiwork or the works of His hands. His handiwork is the glory of God and the glory of God is revealed uh, in or by His handiwork. So it's God's revelation. God's the one's revealing these things in creation. Notice it's a continual revelation. Verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Why, why day to day? Why night to night? Because it never ceases. The, the witness that God gives to, to human beings never ceases. Notice it's gone through all the earth. Verse 4, their line has gone through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. God's speaking, revealing through, through creation. It's a universal revelation. There's no speech, nor, nor are there words or their voice. It's God's revelation. It's continual. It's universal. And it's a, an inexcusable revelation to reject. The end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, the, the illustration of the sun is used. He says the, the sun is, is, is like a bridegroom, verse 5, which comes out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course, rising from one into the heavens of the other. So the sun comes up like a bridegroom out, out of the darkness, and, and, it, and it runs across the sky, and it sets on the, on the other end. Its circuit is from one end to the other. But watch what it says at the end of verse 6. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. It's an inexcusable Revelation to reject. Now, why not, why not say light? There's nothing hidden from the light of the sun. He says heat. Because even a blind and deaf person can feel heat like Helen Keller. And so there's no one who can escape the general revelation of God. It, it, it's all the time. In this entire section, David uses the, the name for God, which is El, just, just the Creator. 
because he's the God of all men. He's the creator of all men. But it takes the gospel to save man, which is exactly what Paul's saying in Romans 1. Look at verse 7. Watch how he shifts the topic from creation to, to the revelation of the Bible. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise uh, the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandments of the Lord. The first line describes what the, what the Bible is. The second line describes what it does. This is what it is, this is what it does. It is, does, is, does. And notice the, the change of words of the name of God. Notice it's no longer the glory of God, but it's the law of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the covenant name of, of God. Yahweh is now used for those who are in covenant relationship with Him because the, the Word of God saves. How do they come in relationship with Him? By, by reading the Bible, by special revelation, which reveals the Creator's name. True suppression starts with creation, Paul says. So does David. Long before sinners reject Christ, they deny the Creator by denying what, what He made. And this revealing of God through creation renders mankind without excuse. Turn back to Romans chapter 1 and look at how he ends in verse 20. Man is inexcusable with this kind of revelation. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Here's Paul's conclusion. While natural revelation discloses something positive, there's a God, He's great, He's powerful, it only has a negative result for mankind because of their sinfulness. You see, the witness in creation is only enough to condemn man because of what they do with that witness. Which is why Paul's eager to preach the gospel to them. Because without the gospel, man's just guilty. The verdict hangs over them because what they do from birth is, is suppress the truth. You want to know why I believe that God is sovereign even in salvation? Well, well here's one reason. Paul says, with all of this witness from the very beginning of creation, all that evidence that demands a verdict that there is a God, that He's a creator and He's powerful, none of that is enough for mankind. It only renders men guilty because of their entrenched refusal to believe. And Paul says, for both of those reasons, because creation reveals and it reveals plainly, all men are without excuse. That's not the only way they suppress the, the truth. Paul now describes why are they why they're without excuse. He declares they're without excuse, and then he shows why. Because man is informed, and he's dishonorable and unthankful. Look at verse 21. Notice its further explanation. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. How did they know Him? It was in them, and it was around them, and, and they rejected that. They suppressed that truth, and, and what did they do instead? They did not honor Him as God or give thanks. So Paul says God reveals and man rejects. And the result of that is to render them without excuse, but, but they go even further. They knowingly dishonor God. Now understand that sinners don't just reject truths or facts. They, the Bible says they reject God. And notice it says they knew God and, and then they did not honor Him. The knowledge of God comes first, and then the lack of honor and the lack of thanks follows. And you must understand the, the issue for, for an unsaved person, you before Christ, or now if you're a believer, for people that you're witnessing to, you must understand that the issue for an unsaved person is not lack of information. They already have enough information, and you already know what they'll do with it. They, they simply reject the information they had. One preacher explained it this way. I think this is super helpful. If you say, uh, let's say you have someone who hates broccoli. Do you think giving them two helpings of broccoli will change the way they feel about it? What about if you give them three helpings of broccoli? Will, will that cause them to, to like the broccoli? 
What if before you served them the broccoli, you gave them a 15-minute presentation on how it's good for you and you detailed all of the benefits and the nutrients and the vitamins in the broccoli? Would that make them like it? The issue is not how much broccoli they have or what they know about it. The issue is the fact that they hate broccoli. And so it is with mankind and with God. The issue is, with sinners is not a lack of knowledge about God. There's, a, there's an evident witness within them. And there is a plethora of witness around them. It's not that if they just hear a little bit more about how good God is that they'll, they'll like Him. It is that they dislike the topic that they already know about, which leads them to reject it and any more that you give them. You see, unbelief may seem like a casual sin, but it's not. Unbelief is not neutral whenever it comes to God. It really doesn't matter what football team you like or, or whether you believe that Tom Brady is the greatest uh, quarterback that ever lived. But unbelief is not neutral when it comes to God. You're not talking about a football player. You're talking about your creator. You're rejecting the God who is. But that's the way it gets presented sometimes. I mean, what's the big deal if a person doesn't believe in God? I mean, is that such a crime? Yes, it is. It's a divine one. And Paul says sin is not just a transgression of God's law. It's a rejecting of God's person. I mean, we're not innocent if we don't cheat and lie and, and murder, and I, and I hope you never do any of those things. If you do those things, the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from all sin. Those are surely great things to avoid. But, but when we don't honor God, and we fail to do the one thing that we should do, sin of omission, and then the iniquity in our heart condemns us as well. Or as Isaiah said, we fail to live up to the, the reason that that we were made. Isaiah 43, 21, the people whom I formed for myself that they may declare my praise. Or Ephesians 2, 10, for we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which He foreordained. We're just created to take up space on the earth or, or decide whether you want to worship God or whether you, you don't. You're you're not just kind of floating out there. You were made by God and for God, and you're accountable to God. As Acts 17, 28 says, whenever Paul was on Mars Hill, he said, for in him we live and move and have our being, or we exist. And because of that, God has the right to call us to that purpose as our maker. I mean, what would you do with a refrigerator that no longer refrigerates? Or a, or a pen that no longer writes, or a flashlight that no longer shines? I mean, is it wrong to expect those things to do what they're made to do? Well, it works the same way with us. God has made us for Himself to honor Him, and so when we don't, even worse, when we do the opposite of that, He's not evil by calling us into account, is He? Of course not. And so verse 21 explains why the revelation of God in nature leads men to be without excuse. It's because they, man fails to glorify God, fails to give Him thanks, even though they knew that there was a God. And the knowledge that they have about God is not enough to overcome their sin and establish a relationship. But it is enough to produce gratitude and awe. But they don't even offer that. Look at verse 21 again. For even though they, they, they knew God... They did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks. I hope you were fortunate enough to have a, a mother or a teacher or somebody that taught you as a child to say please and thank you. Because it's not just a matter of being polite. Something theological about it. Did you know that when you teach your children to do that, you're helping them know God? Because by nature, they don't want to thank anyone, including the Lord. And the issue is not, in giving thanks, is not a matter of manners. It's an act of humility. When you thank somebody for something, you're acknowledging they gave you something. You're, you're acknowledging they did something for you. You're acknowledging dependence upon, upon them. And so it is with the Lord. 
Joel James said a refusal to give thanks to God is not about being impolite, but independence. And Paul says the attitude of mankind's heart is, is I don't need to thank you because you didn't give me anything to begin with. That, that's, that's what's coming through here. That's why human beings don't walk around with thankfulness in their heart to God. They, they don't think that God did anything for them anyway. Or if He did, it's God helps those who help themselves. So, so they're the, really the ones that got credit. They're just smart enough to do what God told them that they should do. Did you know whenever you're unthankful... You're actually imitating unbelievers and you're reverting back to your unsaved ways. That's why grumbling and lack of thankfulness, being unthankful, is such a horrific sin. We don't pray because deep down we don't think that we, we need God and we don't give thanks because we didn't think God did anything for us anyway. And Paul says that's an evidence of sin and stealing of God's glory because there's nothing that you have or that I have that that didn't come from God to begin with. It's also why whenever you first come to Christ, besides the joy of being cleansed, it's why the first thing that you have is a thankful heart, isn't it? You're just filled with thanksgiving and because you're now aware. You know that everything that you have comes from God and you're thankful to Him all the time. You might think of God's wrath this way. What do you think about a child that, that you raised who never thanked you for anything? Every day they got up and they, they ate your food, they slept under your roof, they washed, you, you washed their clothes, you took care of their every need, and they never once said, said thank you. Even worse than that, you ever heard them talking to a friend and they said, my parents have, not, have never done anything for me. What do you think? you think about that, that child? Well, I'll tell you what you would think. You would think that ungrateful little wretch. That's what you'd think. Do you know that's not what God thinks? He reveals His wrath for sure because He must. He's just. But, but what He thinks about mankind, how He responds to mankind refusing this continual witness in them and, and around them and, and, then, and then them rejecting that and thinking that that God's not done anything for me. What he thinks about that is actually revealed in Matthew 23. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stoned, stones those who are sent to her, those who are sent to witness, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you, you were unwilling at another place, when Jesus approached the city in the triumphal entry, knowing that, that, that He's presenting Himself as King, knowing that they're not going to receive Him, uh, when He gets in the temple, He stops halfway down the hill in the procession. And when He approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and wept over it and said, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for your peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. If you had known, I mean, did they not know because they didn't have the information that the Messiah w w was coming? No. In fact, this very day had been prophesied in the book of Daniel, down to the very day when the Messiah would present Himself. They had the knowledge, but they suppressed the knowledge. And when more knowledge came, direct knowledge, even the prophets came. They suppressed it, rejected it, killed the prophets, and Jesus weeps over them anyway because of the judgment that He must now pour out. And God gives all men revelation in creation and when man rejects it, He responds in wrath because He must. But God would much rather save you than judge you. That's why He came to seek and save that which is lost. He desires all men to come to repentance, but Romans 1 says they won't. And as the first half of verse 21 tells us what they should have done with the knowledge that, that, that they had, the second half tells us what they, what they do instead. Number three, the third way man suppresses the truth is he devises worthless beliefs. Paul says it gets worse. What would they do instead? They become futile in their reasonings. They turn from a witness of God and they turn within. Vain and empty. 
Paul outlines three counter-responses that mankind marshals against the truth that they've received. There's futile thinking, darkened reasoning, and foolish conclusions. Look at verse 21b, the end of it. But, notice this contrast, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. So they're all parallel. I mean, three ways to say how people reject God with their minds. Now, notice Paul says it's in their reasonings. It's in their speculations. Their thoughts about God. The conclusions that they draw. Where they turn, rather than turning to God and, and looking for God in creation, in this revelation, they, they, they turn inwardly. They turn to futile thinking. and That leads to darkening reasoning and foolish conclusions. Robert Mount said the proper response to this knowledge about God should be gratitude... But people choose to ignore God and come up with their own version of reality. That's what Paul's saying here. Where will mankind turn if it turns from God for the answers? Paul says they turn to human reasoning. And I say good luck with that. The word for speculations here is man's inward reasoning. They're reasoning within themselves. Reasoning that's absent from God. And and isn't that... Where you turned before you came to Christ, it's where I did. Isn't that where people turn today? Can't you hear it? Look inside yourself. Trust your instincts. Listen to your heart. Follow your gut. You ever tried to do that with something more important than what you eat for dinner? It'll get you nowhere. Well, in fact, it'll get you somewhere. Sadly, it'll, it'll get you to hell. Mankind, with all of its philosophers and gurus and intellectuals, are searching for the meaning of life. They're still searching whenever the the answer's right under their noses. And the best that they can offer is some philosophical merry-go-round. They go from this idea to the next one to the next one, never finding the answer. The only place that truth suppression will lead you is from confusion to darkness. Verse 21 they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was, was darkened. They turn inwardly for the answer and what happens, it, they find greater darkness. Notice the progression here. Foolish speculation leads to futile thinking. And then as one said, their misguided minds plunge them into darkness. And the contrast is on purpose. The truth that can be known The truth that's revealed, that's clear in verse 19, is traded for empty speculations. They clearly see light from God in creation in verse 20, and and it's rejected for for the darkness. And Paul says it is by choice that they do this. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise. They're convinced Not only are they convinced, they proclaim their right. They turn inwardly. They're given over to darkness. They find nothing but darkness. They they can't even tell how how ignorant that they are. And then they proclaim their wise. When what they've done is become a fool. The profession is a declaration. I am wise. I can do it. I can figure it out. I know stuff. I'm smart. And yet God says all of this faulty understanding renders them the opposite of what they think. They think that they're wise, but in reality they're foolish. When you think of a fool, you may think of like a court jester, somebody who acts silly, but that's not how the Bible defines it. It's it's foolishness related to God. Doug Moose said, whatever their initial knowledge of God might be, man's natural capacity to reason accurately about God is quickly and permanently harmed. What people end up with is they grope around without God. What they end up with is a darkened heart. Meaning the thinking is incapable of understanding. You turn from God, you turn inwardly, it just gets worse. You reject the gospel or you reject the gospel over and over, just more darkness. You get to the point where you can't think, can't feel. And that darkness can only be penetrated by the gospel. That's why Paul is so eager to, to preach it. It can't be penetrated by more information or the benefits 
You can only be penetrated by the gospel. That's why Paul says, I must come. I'm eager to come to, to preach the gospel. It's also why the prostitute is easier to win to the Lord than the self-sufficient businessman. Because her circumstances is brought her to the point that she knows she needs to be saved. And the businessman is too foolish to realize it. He's still self-sufficient. Do you ever think maybe that's why God is allowing a hard path for you right now? So you can realize that you have need of Him? You turn to Him rather than yourself? I just keep trying to figure it out and trying to figure it out, and I just can't figure it out. You ever think maybe you're looking in the wrong place? Don't be so foolish to, to go for more of the insight that led you into the pain to begin with. Turn to Christ. That's not what else. Not the only thing. Let me tell you the, the, the last one. Fourth way man suppresses the truth is the end result, he displaces God. The, the result of all of this is idolatry. They exchange the worship of God and they embrace the worship of idols. Look at you at verse 23. It says, And they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Paul says the end result of man's truth suppression is idolatry. The end result is he swaps God out all together for something else to worship. Paul completes the descent here. They exchange the glory of God for the image of human beings and animals. And he says at the heart of all false religion is a rejection of the true God. What, what a degradation that's revealed here. The passage starts with the revelation of the Creator. His eternal power and His Godhead, His divine nature being displayed in creation. And it ends with men worshiping sticks and rocks. There's the contrast, the emphasis how ridiculous this is. The glory of God versus the likeness of the image of man. The incorruptible Lord versus corruptible man. The creature versus the creation. The creator versus the creation. And not just any creature. Not just the ones that walk upright, but even the ones that slither on the ground. That's how it ends. The glory... The splendor and majesty that belongs to God alone is swapped for molded dirt, carved stones, for human-like gods, for concepts of God that, that people turn to. And that's why God's wrath is being revealed right now. The road of truth suppression ends with the temple of Dagon. All idolatry is an expression of creature worship. It's an exchange of worship, worship of creation rather than God. And so the first thing that they did is denial. The second thing is idolatry. Uh, then worshiping the, the images, the, the creation rather than the, than the creator. And their goal in doing that is, is to minimize the distance between them and God. You wonder what's the purpose of, of worshiping an idol or something other than the, than, than the real God. It, it's an attempt to reduce God to, to bring him down on, on our level. That's why people do it. Because a stone or the idea about God that's earthly or earthy reduces God to a manageable level. And for that, God gives them up to the, to the lust in their hearts, which is what we'll see next time. After the rejection of, of, of God, the, the next thing that they reject is the image of God in mankind itself. They... They start by blurring the lines between the creator and creation, and then they blur the lines between men and women, which is the highest created order, the, where you find the image of God represented on the earth. That's what homosexuality is all about. It's a rejection of God, not a, an embracing of love. But if you're here this morning, and, and you're listening to this, and you know all of that, because God has been at work in you. You realize that's what this says? It says if you're here and this is resonating, you understand this, you believe this, you didn't come to that by your, by your natural abilities. Just the opposite. You're blessed. 
God has opened your eyes and revealed these things to you. And if you're here and you're listening and you've never come to Christ and this is making sense, it's, it's God that's doing that in you, not me. As we've seen this morning, it's surely not from your own mind or the devil. And if you can understand it, it's His grace. Because the darkness of your heart can't be penetrated by fear, it can't be penetrated by reason, it can't be penetrated by, by more information, it can only be penetrated by the gospel. And so Jesus says to you, if you understand this and you hear my voice, if you have ears to hear what I'm saying to you, then, then come. Come to me, and I'll wash away all of your sins. Come to me, and not only will you know me, but you'll know more about me. I have a well of joyful knowledge and that it'll take all eternity for you to, to plumb the depths of. Come to me and have your burden removed, and you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Let me pray. Father, I am so thankful for your word. How plain. I am thankful for the witness that you give in creation. What it declares about you. And I am so sorry, Father, for 24 years I rejected that. To my shame, I'm guilty, not you. It had nothing to do with your lack of witness. It had everything to do with my suppression of the truth. But oh, I am so thankful, filled with thanksgiving, that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you, you penetrated the darkness of my heart, and you gave me eyes to see, When I looked up, I saw someone who was able to take away my sin and grant me the righteousness that, that comes as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, this morning, you do this, that same thing for anyone here who's outside of, of the Lord. And that you would help us, teach us, Lord, to, to know the condition of man that we might be faithful witnesses of you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.